Hey everyone, this is Kevin Morris, and welcome to episode number 27 of the Better Bible Reading Podcast and another edition of Teaching Thursdays. I've spent the last few episodes on here talking about interpretation systems of the Bible, how most people interpret the Bible, and we have come to the conclusion in our last couple episodes that the two most popular ways are by either, number one, dispensationalism, or number two, covenant theology. The first episode of this edition was an overview of dispensationalism, so if you want to listen to that, you can check out episode number 23. And the last time we talked with Teaching Thursdays, I gave an overview of covenant theology. If you want to hear that, you can go to episode number 25. For the next dozen episodes, or somewhere around there, We're going to be breaking down covenant theology and how it interacts with dispensationalism. And the reason for that is simple. If going by my claim a couple weeks ago that I think covenant theology is the best interpretation system of the Bible, the best way to understand the Bible, the system that best represents what the Bible teaches, then I think it's only fair to talk about how that system interacts with dispensationalism, the competing view in Christianity. So literally, these next few episodes on Teaching Thursdays are going to be interacting with these two systems, how they agree, how they disagree, and of course, this would be totally worthless to us if we did not look to the Bible to see what it has to say. So good news for you, there's going to be a lot of scripture referenced in this episode and the ones coming, but today we're talking about the universal church and the concept of the universal church answers the question, when did the church begin? And as you listen to this episode, you'll hear how these two views compete against each other in this highly debated question. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy. All right. Good to see everyone. You can turn to Genesis 15, be just a couple minutes before we actually get into that text. But if you want to go ahead and know where we will be at, Genesis chapter 15, the very beginning of that chapter. This week, we're going to talk about the the universal church. Another word for that would be the Catholic church. Not to be confused with Roman Catholicism, but Catholic meaning universal, the universal church. Our first question is, did the church... As it is in the Bible. Did the church begin at Pentecost? Did the church begin in Acts chapter 2? Now this is one of those distinctives of dispensational theology. If you recall the three things that dispensational theology does as a system. Is first a very clear distinction between Israel and the church. As two separate groups entirely. Second a consistent literal interpretation of the Bible, be it prophecy or whatever genre it is, a consistent literal interpretation. And then third, a view of God fulfilling all of his promises in a catastrophic, if we could use that word, a catastrophic end times system, which would be phrases such as rapture, great tribulation, Millennium, end times, 
those kind of phrases. This is all part of that dispensational theology as a system. So one of the most academic bodies of dispensational theology would be Dallas Theological Seminary. I wanted to start out this morning by reading to you part of their statement of faith, their doctrinal statement, from their, this, straight from their website, to help you understand not what I'm saying they're saying, but what they're saying that they're saying. And by they, I don't just mean Dallas Theological Seminary, but I mean any church or denomination that would accept what we call dispensational Theology. So let me, let me read this to you. Again, we're talking about the church in Israel this morning. Here's what it says from their doctrinal statement. We believe that all who are united to the risen and ascended Son of God are members of the church, which is the body and bride of Christ, which began at Pentecost and is completely distinct from Israel. Its members are constituted as such, regardless of membership or non-membership in the organized churches of earth, We believe that by the same Spirit, all believers in this age are baptized into and thus become one body that is Christ, whether Jews or Gentiles. And having become members one of another are under solemn duty to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So one of those phrases that we want to pay special attention to in this is that phrase, how they define the church, beginning at Pentecost and completely distinct from Israel. And then secondly, this is a few more paragraphs down in their doctrinal statement. Secondly, here's what also they say. And again, this is that other facet of dispensational theology regarding the end times. Here's what they say. We believe that the period of great tribulation in the earth will be climaxed by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth as he went in person on the clouds of heaven and with power and great glory. To introduce, now this is what they're saying Jesus will do when he returns. To introduce the millennial age, to bind Satan and place him in the abyss, to lift the curse which now rests upon the whole creation, and then here especially, to restore Israel to her own land and to give her the realization of God's covenant promises and to bring the whole world to the knowledge of God. So there's two elements there that I want you to pay special attention to in that doctrinal statement. The reason that I read that to you is because I want you to understand that the most official seminary in our country, which was made for the purpose of broadcasting and teaching dispensational theology as a system, Dallas Theological Seminary says two important things here. That we need to think about from a biblical perspective. First, that the church began at Pentecost and is completely distinct from Israel. And secondly, that when Jesus returns visibly on earth, he's returning for a millennial reign, a 1,000 year reign. And he's returning in order to restore Israel. Now again, Israel, according to them, a separate people group from the church. To restore Israel to her own land and to give her the realization of God's covenant promises. Now, those are important for us to think about. Just because they say this doesn't mean it's right or wrong. 
But it is important for us at this point to understand that this is, in my mind, a departure from historical Christianity in terms of understanding God's people. Let me share with you how that is so by a simple thought about what our creeds and confessions, not even those that are distinct to Presbyterianism, but just the church as a whole. The historical creeds being the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, even in Chalcedon, the creed regarding Christ. In all of these, and even in our confession of faith too, in all of these, there's a phrase used over and over again. One holy Catholic and apostolic church. I'd like to remind you that word Catholic is another word for universal. So don't, don't think Roman Catholicism, just the word Catholic meaning universal. One holy Catholic and apostolic church. What does that mean to say that there is one Catholic and apostolic church? Well, it would mean that the church is universal. But what does that mean, that the church is universal? Does it mean that the church always existed, the church is eternal? Well, no. But it means that there's always been one church in all places and all times. And that matters very much for our discussion. Because if historically God's people has always been understood as one people... All places, so think nations, think ethnic groups, all places and all times, the full scope of history. In both of those, what's being said, God's people has always been God's people, period. No second group, no parenthesis of group B or group two, just one group. Now, I don't think that those at at Dallas Theological Seminary or anyone who would teach what we're calling dispensational theology would disagree with the phrase one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But just as we read, what they do say is that that church is completely separate from Israel as a nation and as a people. So when we think about this, we want to understand that we're covering each of these elements of dispensational theology. We're trying to understand what that is, what it means. Uh, we covered that in the very first week. So if, if, you're, if you haven't been here the last two weeks or if you missed a week or whatever, uh, just refer you back to week one because we talked about what dispensational theology is, where it came from historically, and how and why it's the dominant system in America especially. Like probably 9.9 churches out of 10 around here would be a dispensational church. But we want to think not just is something right or wrong because it's old or new, but we just want to think, is it biblical? Is there a biblical basis for this? I think our answer can be found in the scriptures we're going to be looking at this morning, beginning with Genesis chapter 15. Our question is, is there a biblical basis for seeing God's people as God's people universally from creation, Genesis 1, to consummation, Revelation 22? Here's what God says 
to Abram. Many of you will be very familiar with this. This is the covenant God makes with Abram. And this is a thread that runs all through the New Testament and the Old Testament. Here's what he says. Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That last verse there, you see it in Romans, you see it in Galatians, you see it in James. And you see it alluded to all throughout the New Testament that promise that God gave to Abraham to bless him as a father of many nations. So the first thing we want to understand is that this promise that God gives to Abraham is the answer to what we're trying to understand and the traceable promise that runs all the way through the Bible. You see this traceable promise mentioned shorthand Every time God is referred to in his covenant name, you see it throughout the rest of Genesis as Abraham's offspring is established. And then you definitely see it by the time Moses shows up on the scene. This phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you see that phrase all throughout the Old Testament. And what is that phrase referring to? Well, it's referring to the promise that God gave to Abraham that this offspring would be established and multiplied and continued. And even in this, I want you to realize what God says to him, especially in verse 5. In verse 5, the way that he uh, the way that he explains and demonstrates what this offspring would look like, what this people group would look like. He says, Look to heaven and number the stars if you're able to. And this, this vast amount of stars that you can't even number is what your offspring is going to be like in terms of numbers and in terms of size and scope. So in that, God gives a promise of an innumerable amount of people in offspring and says, that's the promise that I'm giving to you. And then he qualifies that by saying to Abraham later that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And there's another phrase that we see a lot in the Bible. So a couple things that I want to mention here by looking at this promise. First of all, descendants, according to what God's saying to Abraham, descendants or offspring should be understood as all nations. First and foremost... Because there is no Israel yet. Remember what God said earlier on to Adam when he gave the promise that the offspring would come and crush the head of the serpent. 
Remember, there's no other, there's no other, there's no more humans on earth at this time when God says this to Adam. So what he says to Adam is the case for all people groups who would come in the future. Because there are no other people groups besides Adam and Eve. They represent the entire human race in all of history. And then secondly here, when God gives that demonstration of the vast amount of offspring, he says it will be like the numbers of the stars, which just at this point we could say would surely refer to more than just one nation. I mean, an innumerable amount of stars, what God's trying to demonstrate to him is going to be far beyond just ethnic descent. And also, in the book of Revelation, we will we'll get to this later in our study, but just in terms of mentioning this very quickly, I want to show you one way <clears throat> that the book of Revelation understands this promise. You can turn to chapter 7 of Revelation. And as we're working through this whole teaching series, just to give you an idea of where we're going, what we're covering right now is things related to the church-Israel distinction. And then we'll move to the literal interpretation of Scripture, and then we'll move to prophecy and end times. So this is going to, we'll cover this in greater detail once we actually talk specifically about prophecy and end times. But I want to just show you one thing that is worth noting. In the beginning of Revelation chapter 7, <clears throat> this is right in the middle of everything happening here, but there's 144,000 of Israel sealed. And in the end times view of dispensationalists, this is understood as ethnic Israel. 144 literal Israelites represented here. And the way that they're represented is once you move down to verse 4, this is what John says in Revelation chapter 7, verse 4. He says, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then it walks through and points out 12,000 from each of these tribes. Now, the flow of the text, we'll, we'll actually do an, a more in-depth analysis of this, but just for the sake of time, I just want to point to you one, one thing that I think is very crucial for us to understand. The flow of the text is this. John hears a representative number, a symbol, a sign. What does he hear? He hears 144,000 Israelites. But the text goes on in verse 9. And in verse 9, John sees what he just heard. So he hears... 144,000 Israelites sealed. And then he sees what he heard in verse 9. And verse 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So at this point, we won't spend a long time to try to prove whether or not this is true, but just for the sake of relating this to what I just read in Genesis, I want you to notice that what John is seeing in the book of Revelation is a fulfillment of what he's hearing regarding Israel. So he hears 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, and then he sees 
what the reality or the fulfillment of that is, being a great multitude that no one could number from all tribes, peoples, and languages. That is exactly the phrase and the language that God uses when he talks to Abram throughout the course of his life. He says, your descendants will be innumerable, just like the stars, and innumerable, just like the sand on the seashore. A vast amount of people that no one can number. And here in Revelation, this vast amount that no one can number is not from ethnic Israel, but from all tribes, peoples, and nations. And what we're seeing is that that promise that God gives to Abraham is being traced out and fulfilled all the way through the end of the Bible. Now at this point, if anything, that is just me giving you wishful thinking because that's a, that's a stretch. If we can be fair, that's a stretch to start in Genesis and then go to one verse in Revelation and say, see, there it is. So what I want to do is help all of us understand this by letting Paul explain to us how this is so. And that would be by going to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 is all about Abraham's and whether or not it relates to us, especially in terms of that promise that God gave to him. Now at this point, dispensational theology would say that promise that God gave to Abraham is a promise for the growth and flourishing of ethnic Israel. That promise is completely different from the church. These are two different issues entirely. That's what dispensational theology would say. So we want to say, is that true or is it not true? So here's what Romans chapter 4 says. Now, let's make this a little interactive, if you're willing. Get a couple volunteers. Could I get two volunteers? You can raise your hand as signifying that you're a volunteer. All right. You can read Romans 4, verse 1 through 12. And when you're done, you raise your hand, right? Okay. When he's done, you can read verse 13 through uh, let's see, verse 13 through 18. Okay? Okay, thanks. Stay there, and I'm going to just read a verse of Scripture that coincides with that. This is Paul talking here in Galatians 3. He says, The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, And to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, what is Paul saying in Romans and in Galatians? Paul is saying that the promise that God gave to Abraham predates the assemblance of ethnic Israel. It predates the law 
It predates the distinction of people groups. It was a sovereign promise by God that through Abraham, all nations of the earth would be blessed. And in Galatians 3, Paul says that promise is fulfilled in Christ. The offspring promised is Christ. And that is how Paul can say in Romans 4, this is not just a promise for those who uphold the law, ethnic Jews, those who are circumcised, ethnic Jews, but to all who share the faith of Abraham, to all who accept that promise by faith. Now, what I'm not saying is that ethnic Israel is nowhere on the map in this. But what I am saying is that there's not a hint of this concept that this promise was ever distinctively given to ethnic Israel. That's the whole point that Paul's making in Romans chapter 4, that this promise comes before all of that was ever an issue. And it was a promise for all nations by means of faith. And that's so important for us to understand because Israel as a nation, it goes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is Israel. Remember, God gives him a new name, Israel. So that people group of Israel, the descendants, the tribes, and go into Moses and the law and everything else that happens after the fact, that people group comes through that promise given to Abraham. But that promise given to Abraham was for all nations. So I think a good demonstration of how this is the case is basically in the Bible, it's almost as if you have all the people groups sitting in here just like you all. This is a great opportunity for me to use you as an analogy. You all represent different nations. Let's say that Dave over here is ethnic Israel as a nation. Okay. God makes promises to him and to his offspring, okay? But he is the first kid called up to the blackboard to solve the problem. Now, I don't know how many of you have been in school lately, but normally when that happens, the first one that goes up to the board is just the exemplar that works the problem out so that the next one can come up and the next one can come up and the next one can come up. It's never supposed to just be consolidated all on this person, nor does inviting other people to the board disqualify him just because he was the first one up. So what I'm saying is this promise that God gives does include ethnic Israel, but it includes ethnic Israel so far as those in ethnic Israel are receiving that promise by faith in Christ. That's how Paul can say not all Israel are truly Israel. That's how Paul can say in Romans chapter 2 that no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So in this, it's fine if you want to say Israel is a nation, because clearly that's the case in the Old Testament. Where it ceases to be fine is when we start saying that there's a different program, program and plan in place for ethnic Israel versus every other nation. 
because God is giving one promise and one fulfillment through Jesus Christ, and be it ethnic Israel, Greeks, whatever the case may be, all people groups, all nations of the earth are blessed in that same promise by faith. Now that's the point that Paul's making in Romans chapter 4. And that is why, in small measure, we call our theological system covenant theology. Because it's based on a universal promise given to all mankind by faith, not dispensational theology, which says this dispensation is different with this group, and God's doing something different with this group and with this group. That's basically what's happening here. Is it one reality, one fulfillment, one promise for all time consolidated in Jesus Christ, or is it different ways and promises because of this moment in time and this moment in time and this moment in time. So dispensational theology makes fine distinctions, makes separations, makes stopping points. Covenant theology sees it as one promise fulfilled because, remember, God gave the promise to Adam and Eve, and they represented all of mankind for all time because there were no other people. So whatever promise God gave to them goes for everybody that comes afterwards, and that promise being Christ who crushes the head of the serpent. And that's how it points back to that verse there, crushing the head of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. So one other thing we want to ask, so we're thinking about whether there's a universal people of God, a Catholic church, a universal church. Now the question is, is there a universal reality of faith? Where we can go for that is Hebrews chapter 11. If some of you were in here, this was probably in November. Um, One of the classes in here I taught on substantial faith. And how faith is not a concept but a substance. It's tied to something. And we spend a lot of time in Hebrews 11 so I won't rehearse all of that. That I already have, but one thing that I would like to show you here. One, yet again, you know, here's one of those uh, Bible memory verses that we've been talking about. We've been looking at verses and we've been saying, those of you who grew up in a Bible memory context, this was probably one of those that you had to memorize for points for your team or or prizes or whatever they bribed you with. And uh, that verse there is uh, the very first verse of Hebrews 11, which is commonly a shorthand definition of faith. And here's what it says. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By it, by what? By faith, the people of old received their commendation. So first of all, I want to point out, faith was the reality of, Of the people of old. Now, this is where we get into a problem here because I don't know if you recall a couple weeks ago when I was talking about dispensational theology, I said a lot of times it's hard to kind of hammer down because there are different varieties of it. There's classical, progressive, hyper, somewhere in between, there's different varieties of it. In classical dispensational theology, what is normally said is that faith is a reality for the New Testament. Faith and works 
or some would even go so far as to say works, but normally you would hear it as faith and works, was the reality of the Old Testament. But here, well, the author of Hebrews is saying that faith, faith was the reality of the people of old. And how does he define that? How does he show that that was the case? Well, you see, and I won't read all of chapter 11, but he just goes on this relentless demonstration that faith was the reality for all the people of the Old Testament. And how does he do that? He just does a roll call. He just goes one right after another. I mean, I have them highlighted in my Bible, so it may be easier to, to, to catch them. But you have Abel, verse 4, Enoch, verse 5, Noah, verse 7, Abraham, verse 8, Sarah, verse 11, Abraham again, verse 17, Isaac, verse 20, Jacob, verse 21, Joseph, verse 22, Moses, and then on and on it goes. And in all of this, the description of the lives of these people is lives lived by faith. So faith is not a, is not a New Testament novelty. It's not a new reality that comes into play once you get to the New Testament and once you get to Acts chapter 2, which the dispensational theology view would say that was when the church really began. But faith is not restricted to the New Testament because the whole point of Hebrews 11 is that we as New Testament believers are being called to live lives of faith. And how does he tell us to do that? He says, look to the Old Testament. Look to see how they lived. That's how they lived, by faith. Here's a demonstration. One, 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 one right after another. Here they are. Lives lived by faith. And especially in verse 17, Abraham, by faith when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, back to what we've been talking about in Genesis, the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So the whole reality of Abraham's life was a life of faith. And that life of faith was centralized on Jesus. Now, how do we know that's the case? Because in chapter 12, now remember, chapters are not divisions of thought. Chapters are just quick reference points of how to get to somewhere. So he's the same line of thought here in chapter 12. The author of Hebrews says in verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And our faith is to be lived the way that those in the Old Testament lived. They are our examples. They're our forerunners. They're the ones who show us how to do it. And he's saying that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. So any kind of faith we're talking about in the Bible as true faith is consolidated and pointed and centralized on Jesus. This is why Jesus can say a very fascinating thing. You can turn here if you want, but you don't have to. In John chapter 8, this is just a quick reference here. When Jesus gets into trouble, as it were, by the religious establishment, by saying, before Abraham was, I am, 
and they wanted to stone him, he says something very interesting about Abraham. We'll just kind of focus in here on verse 54. This is right in the middle of a conversation taking place here with Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. And he says, this is Jesus' words here in verse 54 of John chapter 8. Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Now, here's the verse I want us to look at. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, how did he see it? God didn't give him a special vision, a physical vision of Jesus Christ. But Abraham knew that this promise would be fulfilled in the one who is to come. How did he know that? Because the promise predates everything that takes place all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The promise that one would come to crush the head of the serpent. And just as I said last week, in covenant theology, we see all of these additional covenants made in the Old Testament, be it the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, all of those fall under that covenant of redemption that God gave in Genesis 3.15 because Jesus is the fulfillment in all of them. And we've read this morning how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Back in December, we worked one by one how Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king how he's the fulfillment of what God had to say with Moses and what he had to say with David. So in all these instances in the Old Testament, they are not different systems. They are not different things that God's doing with different people at different times. They're all foreshadowing and pointing towards that one promise being fulfilled. Genesis 3.15, the Christ is going to come. And by the way, he's the fulfillment of everything. Everything experienced and happening in the Old Testament. That's how we can say, be it Abraham, be it David, be it Moses, all that was promised is fulfilled in Jesus. And that's why we want to see that what God is doing through the whole scope of redemptive history is he's accomplishing one plan for all peoples in one man, Jesus Christ. Not different systems with different peoples. And to close, the best place that I know of, and my conviction to settle this issue once and for all, is Ephesians chapter 2. I need two more people who are willing to... All right, you can read Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Hang on just before you start. Any more volunteers? One more volunteer. All right. You can read Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, whenever he finishes Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. You can go ahead and start. Quite plainly, I think that that just settles it. Because the whole point that Paul is making in chapter 2, 
that we are one body in Christ. And then in chapter 3, that one mystery, one eternal purpose is being fulfilled and accomplished in Christ. And notice, just to point out, a lot of these phrases that Paul uses, starting, or we can go ahead and look here in verse 11 of chapter 2, and I'm just going to point out things all the way through verse 13 of chapter 3. He says, We were at one time separated and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. In Jesus, verse 14, he has made us both one. Who is both Israel and those of us who are outside of Israel? What has he done? He's destroyed the wall of hostility. He's created in himself one new man in place of the both. Verse 15. He's reconciled us both to God in one body. Verse 16. Verse 18, through him we have the same access in the same spirit. Verse 19, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being himself the cornerstone. And Paul wants to explain if in fact this is some new reality happening or if this was always the goal in chapter 3 and here's what he says he's explaining in chapter 3 verse 3 that all he's talking about is the mystery the mystery made known to him again verse 4 the mystery and then he adds this of Christ so this mystery is tied to Christ Again in verse 6, this, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise, all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. And then again, verse 9 To bring to light for everyone the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Verse 11. This mystery, this plan, was according to the eternal purpose, the self-same purpose, the purpose that God has always had in mind. This is not a plan B happening here. The purpose he's realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If there's any place that it's fuzzy or questionable as to whether or not we have a second-hand blessing or some kind of different blessing than what has always been promised, let it be solved once and for all by here in the Scriptures. Because Paul is using emphatic terms so that nobody would come away with the thought that God is suddenly doing something different or God is suddenly just slamming the brakes down hitting the floorboard with the brake pedal and starting something new with the church for a little while and then going back to Israel because all of this the promise the assembly the fellowship everything is all found in Jesus Christ for all peoples one of the accusations that's made 
in covenant theology that's made about covenant theology is that we teach replacement theology. What that means is they're saying that we are coming along and saying that the church has now replaced Israel. Well, remember that little analogy about the classroom. The goal was never to, impl- to replace Dave over here. The goal was to bring more in after him. But he's still just as much in as everybody that comes after him because it's all in the same promise and the same fulfillment. But that promise, Dave doesn't get a free pass. Sorry to keep using it like this. Dave doesn't get a free pass just because he's an Israelite ethnically. But he gets a free pass by grace through faith in Jesus Christ just like everyone else does. And that's the purpose that Paul's making here. Now there is... Something to be said, and I don't want to pretend that this, because this is one of the most crucial places that this gets contested at, is in Romans 9 through 11. And we will look at that. We just won't look at it today because I'm going to treat it in our end times discussion because that's a, that's a vital point of where all that comes into play. But suffice to say that this, I hope, shows you biblically that there has been one universal people of God through that one universal promise given for all by faith in Jesus Christ. And there's been one plan that God has been working through and revealing throughout the whole scope of Scripture. And it's all found in Christ and anyone of any nation or ethnicity, ethnicity that's found in him through faith. So does anybody have any questions? We've got about five minutes. I've been trying to not run us over. I've been a little late the last couple of weeks, so I'm trying to... Trying to be more responsible here, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, the benefit is that, that I say they, but just let's say the system would teach that we take everything in the Old Testament and spiritualize it or make it into an allegory or some kind of parable that everything literally promised in the Old Testament is suddenly spiritually applied. So what they would say is that they're, is that we're playing fast and loose with with the text and if it sounds literal we just need to take it literal so thereby them taking everything in the old testament literal leads them that when it says israel everywhere it says israel that's ethnic israel not church the word church is not there so that's ethnic israel so when we get to the new testament something else has got to happen for ethnic israel and the way that they see that happen is they would say that when jesus came to earth he offered that physical, literal kingdom to ethnic Jews. And because they rejected it, he pulled the brakes on it, and then he said, okay, I'm going to go make them jealous, and I'm going to do this church thing with the Gentile people for however long. And then when I finish that, I'm going to go back to Israel in this cataclysmic end-time system of millennial reign, etc., etc. And then all that stuff has that's been on delay is going to is going to be fulfilled literally to literal ethnic Israel. That's, that's the dispensational system in, in a very brief thing. But, but the reason that they do that is because they think it's more responsible to take everything in the Old Testament and say it's got to be fulfilled literally. So that answers your question. Anybody else? Yeah. Good. Yeah. 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 The, the I'm saying that the 144,000 is a symbolic representation of what he sees immediately after because he hears the number and then he's shown something visibly. So I'm saying what he sees visibly as that innumerable number of people is what he just heard represented 
in the 144,000. Now, that, now that, that doesn't have to, that's not like we have to see it this way. But just an example of that is that Revelation is filled with symbols and signs. Because once we actually get to the end times discussion, all of this does determine how somebody um, interprets Revelation chapter 20, which talks about a millennium, which they, again, the millennium being a thousand, they think there's a, one, there's a literal 1,000 year reign. So everything happening in, in Revelation goes into that same problem of is it symbolic or literal? But one of the best cases to say that things in Revelation are certainly symbolic, even if not always, is the fact that early on God is depicted as the seven spirits of God all across the earth. Now, we wouldn't say that God has literal, literally seven different spirits. I mean, you kind of have to, though, if you have this hard line, literal understanding. Seven being totality. Yeah, seven. Yeah, exactly. Go ahead. Well, in verse 2 of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. That word stewardship literally being dispensation, dispensation of God's grace. So they would say, see, there's the word dispensation. So what Paul's about to say is a separate moment in history of everything else. So that's, that's kind of the, the verse that they would cling to. Almost So it's kind of ironic because the substance of Ephesians 3, in my mind, settles it once and for all. Whereas they would actually go to Ephesians 3 and look at that word to validate their point. Yes. Yeah. Dispensation is not a bad word. I don't want to throw that. Even, even in our Westminster Confession of Faith, we use the word dispensation. But when we use it, we're not talking about different programs that God's doing. It's just different moments in time. And like I said back in week one, we can agree that Moses on Mount Sinai was a different moment in time than today. How do we know that? Because we don't make animal sacrifices anymore. If anybody has any other questions, you can come talk to me afterwards. Thank you so much for your patience. And uh, will you please pray for us? Well, if you're still listening to this, then you have made it all the way through this episode. And I want to congratulate you. And I also want to thank you for your participation with what I'm doing here on the Better Bible Reading Podcast. It wouldn't be possible without your listening as part of the Better Bible Reading community. So thank you so much. I want to invite you to go over to betterbiblereading.com because there you can access the show notes for any of these podcast episodes and you can leave a comment. I would love to hear some feedback from you about this episode or any of the subsequent episodes that will be released here on the show. So as we close out this episode, I hope you have a good grasp on why this discussion matters. After listening to that last episode, I think it's clear that understanding the concept of the universal church really influences how we understand salvation. It's how we understand what God is doing, how we understand and appreciate our salvation in Jesus and what exactly it means to be adopted into God's family. So these discussions matter, and they do have a bearing on how we understand the Bible and what God reveals to us in it. 
So keep digging, keep pressing into the Bible, and keep seeking understanding as we read it more and more as we read it to God's glory. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your day. God bless you.